morning, church. Um, it's always a privilege to be able to come up here and open God's word with you. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come to you in the name of your beautiful and glorious Son, Jesus, our Lord and our King. We come to you, Lord, because your Spirit is at work in us. And Father, as we open your word now, I pray that you would incline our hearts to your heart, not to any selfish gain, not to any false motive. That you would open our eyes, Lord, that we would behold glory in your word, your glory. That as a family here, you would unite our hearts to yours. That we would fear your name. That we would be satisfied with your love. That you would lead us into all truth. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth would be pleasing unto you that you, Holy Spirit, would take that which is true and plant it deep within our hearts. And that, Father, we would walk away not simply informed, but transformed. I submit to you, Lord, this message. In the name of your Son, amen. So if you have a copy of the Bible, would you open up with me to Psalm 48? And this is going to be the second message of our series in the Psalms of Zion. And let's read together. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion is in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made known himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, and they came together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever, Selah. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Amen. And so I'm very excited about this series, the Psalms of Zion, um, because over the years, the Psalms have become a source of deep comfort for me. When I first came to faith, I actually hated the Psalms. I just wanted to get into Paul's letter because I just wanted to learn theology and debate theology. But the Psalms over the years have not only softened my heart, but they've enlarged my heart for who God is. So today I have this great privilege of looking at this psalm and helping 
All of us here see the glory of Zion. But before we do that, I don't want to take it for granted that everybody has an understanding or the same understanding of what Zion means or what Zion is. So let me unpack that first. The word Zion first appears in the book of 2 Samuel in chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. It reads, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David can't come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And so that passage is telling us of the capture of Jerusalem. And then in one chapter later, in chapter 6, verse 12, the Ark of the Covenant is brought there. And the Ark, as we know, was, uh, was this chest, and it was made of wood. It was overlaid with gold. It was kept in the tabernacle and eventually in the temple in Jerusalem. But what's important for us to know this morning as it regards to the Ark is that it was associated with the presence of God. It was the place where he dwelt. So, with the ark now being in Jerusalem, that area became known as Zion, the dwelling place of God. And that's what our readers and our hearers in Psalm 48 would have had in mind. But as followers of Christ, we have the privilege of having the full counsel of God, and so Zion begins to take on a fuller meaning for all of us. Physical Zion was Jerusalem, but then there was this ultimate Zion that we see now. And ultimate Zion for us is the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so Jesus is God in the flesh. And since what made Zion, Jerusalem, so special was that God dwelt there, so Jesus, the God-man, is truly the ultimate Zion. But Zion even goes a step further. Because there's physical Zion, there's ultimate Zion in Christ, but then there's corporate Zion, because as followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in us. And we live in Christ. Which means the presence of God is here right now, and when we leave, it'll, the presence of God is with us wherever we go. And so the church is Zion as well. In that same chapter in 1 Peter, it says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. And so we see there's these three Zions. There was the physical Zion, there's the ultimate Zion, there's corporate Zion, but there comes a glorious day when there will be a future Zion. We actually read of this earlier. It'll be when the bride of Christ, the bride is perfectly united with the groom in the new heavens and in the new earth. That's what we read in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city... New Jerusalem, coming down out from the heaven of God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, I know there's a lot of information to cover right out the gates, and you may not have caught all that. But as we work through this series, 
that theme will be coming up again and again. But here's just a quick summarized point I'm trying to say. Zion is God's presence with his people. Zion is God's presence with his people. And so with that kind of working definition, let's look at Psalm 48 now. The first point is the glory of Zion is the glory of the king. Verses 1 through 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion is in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. So the first thing we need to take notice of here is that, it, is that God is worthy of all of our praise. All of our praise. And I want you to really think about that. Because we've gotten really casual in our conversation about God. So much so that every time something good happens or we hear great news, we just say, oh, praise God. It's kind of like the evangelical version of saying, that's great. For many of us, praise God is just another one of our Christian catchphrases. So I think a better question to kind of get our hearts headed in the direction of this psalm is how much do we know about this God we say that we're praising? The psalmist wrote, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And so before we ever praise God for what he's done, we need to be praising God for who he is. A little bit about our God. He's perfect, eternal, and self-existent. God is unchanging, all-powerful, and all-knowing. God is always present, and he's holy. He's also righteous and truthful and faithful. Our God is perfect love. And he's the creator and the sustainer of all things. He's also Lord over all things. He's the lawgiver and the judge. But he's also the redeemer. And he's our sacrifice and our hope and our joy. And we can go on and on for all eternity and never exhaust all that God is. So yeah, we have to agree with verse 1 here in the psalmist. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. But God's also to be praised for the things he's done. For these hearers, I mean, he's taken a group of people, a struggling nation of former slaves, of exiles, and he's placed them in this rich land so that all the other surrounding nations will see how great God is in and through these people. And so I think the Westminster Shorter Catechism gets it spot on when it says, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. But something amazing happens here in verse 2. This praising of God is the joy of all the earth. All the earth. And so if you're like me, you're looking at that and you're thinking, wait, how is that possible? What do you mean all the earth? It's because the God who dwells in Zion is also the creator king of the entire world. And this really shouldn't surprise us because there have been hints of it throughout the Bible up to this point. In Genesis 1.28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. 
and subdue it. Or in Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And then in Genesis 17, verses 4 and 5, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. It's always been the plan of God to have a people of God praising God from every nation. The world was always meant to find their joy in the presence of the king of Zion. Now, something we miss in our English translations is that phrase right there in verse 2 in the far north. Some Bibles may render it Zaphon in your Bible. In the Ugaritic myths, right, the surrounding religious uh, beliefs here, this in the far north was where the false gods would assemble. And so it seems like the psalmist is having a play on words here. It's kind of like he's saying, it's in Zion where the one and only true God resides. So turn from your false gods that leave you joyless and turn to the one who can bring the joy to the entire earth. It's not a geographical God. His joy isn't limited to a specific region. His joy extends to the farthest corners of this globe. Every single person you and I will ever meet in our lifespan was created to find their joy in the King of Zion. What was true then in Psalm 2 is true today. And so we need to not forget this and withhold it from people. There are still many citizens of Zion out there. They just don't know it yet. But there's a day coming when that's going to be a reality. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that nobody could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. There's a lot of citizens of Zion out there still. They just don't know it. And so let's live lives that long to see our God as the joy of all the earth. Of all the earth. Now in verse 3, it says, Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. And again, some people in here may not be familiar with what a citadel is because it's not part of our everyday speech. So a citadel is a stronghold, it's a fortress or a portion of a building that was especially fortified to protect against attacks. But the psalmist is saying here, within her citadels, God has made himself. It wasn't the citadel that kept them safe and secure, it was God. It's God, not structures, that gives security to the believer. The psalmist wants them to remember that it isn't the work of their hands that keeps the enemies at bay. 
It's the presence of God among his people that makes this fortress in Zion. And this is a word for us today. Our security isn't going to come from our programs and our policies. It's going to come from God who is our fortress. We need to be very careful what we're finding our security in. We need to run to the Lord. He and he alone is going to give the church its security. It comes from remembering Paul's words, if God is for us, who can be against us? It comes from Martin, remembering Martin Luther's great hymn, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And so if that first point, those first three vo- verses are showing us that the glory of Zion is the glory of the king, then our second point, verses 4 through 8, are going to show us also that the glory of Zion is the victory over her enemies. Verses, starting at verse 4. For behold, the kings assembled, and they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we've seen in the city of our Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. The people of God have always faced opposition. Always. Physical Zion, corporate Zion, has often been attacked and will continue to be attacked. It's nothing new. We act so surprised as things get harder. But that's the story of Scripture. Here we read of these these various kings coming together. They're assembling. They're uniting. They want to wage war on God and his people. And I'm pretty sure these kings, they felt confident in their large military numbers. They probably could taste victory as they sailed their warships. They were probably already planning their celebration of the conquest they thought they were going to have. But they forgot one thing. They weren't attacking simply the people of Zion. They were also attacking its king. And this king happens to be the one true God, the king of all the earth. So these kings, I'm sorry to say, their arms are simply too short to get in the boxing ring with God. But it didn't stop them. They tried, but they left filled with fear and they left filled with failure. Look at verses 5 and 7. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. When you come face to face with the God of Zion, you only have two responses. You can be filled with joy, which we saw in verse 2, or you can be filled with fear, which we see in these verses. These kings, they were filled with fear. They didn't want to give up their kingship for the king. There was something about Zion that froze them in their place. And so again, I'm asking, okay, what is it they saw? What was it? They saw the glory of the king of Zion. If they didn't flee, they'd be heading on a suicide mission. Because the fear of Zion is the fear of the king. These great armies with their mighty warships, that doesn't mean anything because all the king of Zion has to do is lift up his hand and bring about a raging wind and it's going to dash their ships to pieces. Verse 7. 
in that phrase, that, those two words, east wind. Those are super important because throughout the Old Testament, that's often used as a divine judgment of God. In Jeremiah 18, verse 17, Like the east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back, not my face, in the day of their calamity. Or in Hosea 13, 15, Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord, shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. The glory of Zion is shown by the king of Zion defeating its enemies. And so we need to consistently always step back and make sure it's the Lord that's fighting our battles. God doesn't call us to fight here. God calls us to go to the fortress, which is him. And I think we often want to be the ones fighting because, one, we have an elevated view of how powerful we think we are, and we have a low view of how powerful God is. God is going to be the one to both secure the safety and the victory of his people. He's promised in his word to his church that the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. And so knowing that, verse 8 is very instructive for us if we're going to have that response. As we have heard, so we've seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. It says that they had heard this, but also they had seen it. From their youth, they had been taught about this great God and the things he'd done. But now something changed. They'd also seen it with their own eyes. It, beyond, it went beyond what they knew to what they experienced. They knew at the heart level that the king of Zion was for them and that he would not let Zion fall. This king, this lord of hosts, lord of armies, he's securing Zion for all eternity, he says, will establish forever. That's why we read in Revelation 21, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Brothers and sisters, attacks are going to continue, but we can take heart because we know the gospel will prevail. Enemies are going to flee. The glory of Zion is going to shine forth, and we're going to get to sing about it for all eternity. But until that day comes, we need to we do need to do some fighting. We need to be fighting in prayer within the fortress of God. He's not asking us to take up arms. He's calling us to go to our knees. This brings us to the third point, verses 9 through 11. The glory of Zion is the joy of his people. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. You know, it's fitting that after seeing that Zion will triumph over their enemies because God is the one doing the fighting, that these next three verses show corporate worship. It starts off with we... We have thought on your steadfast. 
The people of Zion are gathering together for this. It says that they gathered together and they were thinking on, they were considering, they were meditating on God's covenant love toward them, shown by his protection and sustaining of them. And the last night, as I was preparing this message, I realized, isn't that what you and I are doing here today? Have we not throughout the week been engaged in various spiritual battles? And haven't in the midst of those battles we've been trusting that God would bring us through them because his steadfast love is for us? And then we woke up and we got in our cars and we came here and we find ourselves ready to lift our voices and to consecrate our minds and to give our hearts as an offering to the king together as his people. I pray that's what we're doing. I pray that this is a reflection of what was happening right there in verses 9 through 11. That this corporate worship would be because we see that the covenant of God, God's covenant love, is at work in the lives of his people. So, verse 10 As your name, O God, so as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. The glory of God all over the earth, so why shouldn't his praise fill the earth? Again, it's making clear that the praise of the God of Zion was never meant to stay fixed in physical Zion. It was the desire of God for all to hear what he had done. It's always been more than just Jerusalem. It's always been with the hope, the pointing to that new Jerusalem that will come when Jew and Gentile are one as citizens of Zion. And it says that he is a righteous God. God always keeps his promises and he's always there for his people. And I just love the way it says it. Your right, uh, your right hand is filled with righteousness. God's hand is never empty toward his people. And it's his right, his hand of power. He displayed that through the victory of the enemies. He upholds his righteousness, his standard, his goodness. All that God is in himself, he is for you, for me. And that is praiseworthy. That is so praiseworthy. It would do us well to just stop and to spend the rest of the day just praising God on what he's done in our lives. We get so caught up in this, on the hamster wheel and we just forget minute by minute, day by day, all the things that God has done for us. He got you here safely. He deserves to be praised. We don't even know how many arrows have been pointed at us by the enemy that God has deflected. And so we've seen that the glory of Zion is its king. The glory is shown in victory. The glory leads to joy for all people. But all of that ends here at the last point. The glory of Zion is a message for future generations. 
verses 12 through 14. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. That you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. As the psalmist is wrapping up this this song, this poem that he's writing, he wants to leave his hearers with two final things. The first is he wants them to worship him, and the other is that he wants them to live on mission for him. So first, worshiping God. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels. He's telling the people, go, go walk around Zion. Walk around, look up. Number all those towers. Look at the ramparts, the walls. Look how secure and strong they are. Pass through the citadels. Really get a good look at it all. Consider it, examine it, contemplate it in your heart. Don't take for granted these fortifications, these defenses you have. And I'm sure that the people would look at all that and a deep sense of confidence would begin to well up in their heart. We're safe. We're secure. We're good. That was a lot to be worshiping there. Look what God's given us. He's given us this amazing fortress. And they would remember at every turn, God was watching over them. What's going on here, these 12 verses, as they're walking around and doing this in 12 through in 13, is that it's sort of a Thanksgiving procession that's happening throughout the city. They're all going on a big walk, seeing it all, being overwhelmed by it all. But the reason the psalmist is doing this is because as they're examining all that, he wants them to understand What's so amazing, powerful, and glorious isn't the stone that put all these things together. That's simply a symbol for God, for the king of Zion. The towers of Zion show her to be unconquerable. The walls show her to be invincible. And all that points to the omnipotent character of God. John Calvin, in his commentary, writes this. In making mention here of her towers and walls, We are not to suppose that he would have the minds of the faithful to rest in these things. He rather sets them before us as a mirror in which the character of God may be seen, end quote. So just like we saw in verses 1 through 3, the glory of Zion here is the glory of its king. But this worshiping of God wasn't meant to stop there. Worship of God should always move our hearts to partake in the mission of God. If worship doesn't move you to share, then you're not worshiping fully. So verses 13 and 14, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He'll guide us forever. Now every citizen of Zion receives this personal charge, and it's the same charge that you and I are called to. And the reason it's so important to go and tell the next generation about who God is and what he's done is because what's assumed in one generation is going to be forgotten in the next. Now, God has promised that his church, Zion, will never be snuffed out. Programs will fade away. Pastors will retire. Buildings will crumble. And saints will die. 
But who God is and what God's done will stand forever. It is etched on the walls of eternity. And so as the people of God, as citizens of Zion, we have this great privilege to pass that torch on to the next generation. Go and tell everybody what God has done in your life because of who he is. So the question that was just haunting me last night as I sat in my sunroom going over my notes was, am I going to be found faithful? Am I going to be found faithful of taking this amazing message of who God is and what he's done and giving it to the next generation? Or am I just going to keep talking about it and reading books about it? So let's close here. Today, we, in, in this psalm, we've seen that the reason Zion is glorious is because God is glorious. That the reason that this glory of Zion was shown in the victory over her enemies, that the glory of Zion is supposed to be the joy of all people, and that it's, this glory of Zion is a message for all generations. Now, physical Zion does not stand anymore. People can no longer look back to these man-made structures that we're reading about and see the glory of Zion and its king as they did. But it doesn't mean that the glory of Zion isn't there anymore. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, is ultimate Zion, and we are united in him. And so the church is Zion triumphant. And it's because the church is Zion triumphant that the glory of Zion today, right now, is shining forth into the world through our lives. To see Zion is to see God. To see the church is to see God. And so just as Jerusalem was an elevated city, a city on a hill, so too is the church. And so as we leave today, I want you and I to make sure to remember that because we're united to the King of Zion through the blood of Jesus Christ, the glory of Zion lives in us And it would do us well to remember the words of Jesus. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. That light of the world, may that be the glory of Zion shining, the glory of the king. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you are great and that you are glorious. And I thank you, Father, that you decided to show your glory, to manifest your glory by calling a people to yourself, by the establishment of Zion. I thank you, God, that you are the true God of all nations, that your glory was not just for a people group, but for all of humanity, because we are all made in your image. And I pray now, Lord, as we are citizens of Zion, that we would hold fast to our citizenship, that we would prize it above all things, and that we would carry ourselves accordingly. But Father, I pray because we know that there are many out there who are also citizens of Zion, but they just don't know it. Father, I pray that the gospel would break forth, the good news that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the dead are made alive. And citizens of Zion are called home. May we as the church, as corporate Zion today, 
shine the glory of the great city because it's the glory of you, the great king, and all we think, say, and do. And until you return, Lord, until the new Jerusalem is established, let us remember the church is a city set on a hill meant for your glory to shine forth. In Jesus' name, amen.